Hello, everybody. Today's just a great day. My name's Stu Trilly, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group, and I've got an old friend of the show here today. We are just going to have an absolute blast. We've got an action-packed whole list of everything to talk about. I have one of my good friends, John Rogers. Uh, John is a industry expert, and I mean, he knows his stuff with oil, energy, and uh, we're talking some serious ESG questions that we got coming up. John, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. It's a pleasure, Steve. Looking forward to it. You know, uh, when you were uh, CEO out there and everything else, I just enjoyed tackling you at the shows. And, you know, you and I have had, you've been on the show, I think, twice before. And we've always gotten great feedback on your your insights. How did you get started? Like you were at BP and where else were you at? Well, I've always been oil and gas business. Uh, I started off on the service side, Stu, and I was lucky enough to Spent five years over in Asia Pacific, and then five years in the Middle East, a couple of years in Europe, and then the last few years in the States. I've always been either on the service side or oil producer. As you mentioned, I was a uh, director of technology for BP. I was with BP for eight and a half years. Extremely interesting. I was there during the Macondo situation, and you 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 really see how professional a company is during those. Learned so much from my time at BP. Oh, and then after that, I was with Clarient for a number of years and Locust Bioenergy. So I had a great mix of everything from startup to oil super major. You know, the Locust Bio, I loved Locust Bio from the standpoint of the frac fluids in the ESG story. That was really strong. So spectacular. Great technology. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later on in the context of okay. you know, we discussed about talking about new technologies and what Exxon are bringing in. But there's some great technologies, which, uh, you know, we're only getting 10% of, this, of the oil in place out of shale. There's a lot of technologies now that can improve. Oh, that. cool. You know, biosurfactants is one of them. Do I know? See, biosurfactants is one of the technologies that can, I think, augment what ExxonMobil are planning to do. Oh, cool. You know, uh, as we sit back, we were kind of chit-chatting before this, and there is a serious there's about 15 different things that are now trying to change the world pricing mechanisms. And, you know, we have energy poverty, John, you know, my feelings on let's get the lowest kilowatt per hour to everyone on the planet with the least amount of impact on the environment. And absolutely, we got to use everything, got to use renewable nuclear. I don't care what it is, but let's get the lowest kilowatt per hour and, and end energy poverty. And so we got the geopolitical stuff going on out there, man. People go to war over energy. So, you know, we take a look at, uh, do you remember, uh, was, it, was it a couple of years ago when Little Engine uh, number one went into, uh, was it Exxon's board and got that in there? So we've had the ESG movement in there. We've had the Europeans, uh, Total and all those other ones go totally uh, off their base. And then we've had the U.S. kind of really stay on their tracks. What are your thoughts on those kind of things? I think it's really interesting. If you look at where the industry was in 2020, we were, you know, negative oil coming back. We better reinvent themselves. And we, we really had two distinct uh, divisions. Now, obviously, for Europe, the European-based companies, Europe's always regulated more for ESG, and there was a, I think the 2018 act that came in, it was um, Action Plan for Sustainable Finance, and it meant that European companies you know, had to 
have ESG as one of their KPIs. So coming out of 2020, I think we had two distinct schools. We had companies in Europe that maybe said, okay, we're going to be power providers rather than oil and gas producers. In fact, we'd be looking about, we're going to be electricity suppliers. So very much they laid out the vision of renewables. How do we do everything from EV charging? And there was a great technology laid out there. Whereas people like Exxon, the US said, no, we're going to double down on oil and gas. We know it's our core business. I think up till about 2020, the, the jury was out. There was a lot of major investors that basically pulled out of some of the big companies. If you, I think there was one called Storland Asset Management that ran a lot of Norway's uh-huh. big funds. And they said, no, we're pulling out of some of the major oil and gas. I mean, I thought some companies in Europe, they put out their plans there to have this hybrid mix of oil production for the next number of years and then a long-term commitment. And really the there was sort of crickets from the market because they were in a they were really in a caught between two stools because you had the environmentalists didn't think it went far enough. And you had the traditional oil and gas investors who were looking for investment return and really were interested in funding some long-term carbon neutral project. But obviously I think it all changed you obviously when the Ukraine-Russian conflict started, and suddenly we come to this much bandied term, the, the trilemma. How do you get access to energy, so security? How do you get affordable? And how do you get sustainability? And then we had a 180 from the governments who had been pushing right. for companies, big oil companies, to actually reduce down the amount of oil they produced. And then suddenly they're coming back and said, we need you to ramp up. Right, And even to the fact that if you look at Europe, Europe was importing like 40% of its gas from Russia, and it was something like 46% of its oil. And what did they do when the power, or rather the lines were cut off? They had to go even to reestablishing coal-powered plants. So it's not a black and white argument the way to go forward. But what the markets basically rewarded were the companies that when the demand came were best able to ramp up, and certainly that was ExxonMobil. They could ramp up, they could meet that demand, and their stock price reflected it. Their stock price increased by 50% last year. Now, what's what's happened, I think, in the meantime is people have realized now that the engine one that you mentioned, even engine one are saying, yeah, we have to have energy security first and foremost. Right. Uh, it's a basic need for humanity and certainly for the West and all the industry. So I think we're coming maybe to a point where we're considering different factors rather than you take a polarized view, no oil, or basically nothing for the environment. You know, John, I've always been a big fan of uh, Saudi Arabia, not some of their humanitarian policies, but I love the way that they are doing their energy policies. You know, they they are putting money into hydrogen. They're putting money. They're using uh, natural gas and oil as their way to pay for their Saudi fund and everything else. Uh, hats off to them. Uh, did you see the article that was, I think it was just released yesterday that Larry Fink is getting, uh, uh, you know, the uh, CEO of uh, Saudi Aramco on his board. Uh, did you see that? That was pretty wild. And so that, do you think that that kind of marriage that you were just kind of alluding to is coming down the road? Well, you, you need both. If you've got a project that, especially when interest rates are low, you would have a project when interest rates are low, obviously, when they discount back from when these projects are going to produce cash flow and profits. Right. 
But when interest rates are low, you can look out at 20 years and come back with something that's got a positive NPV value. When interest rates go up, then you need to have something that's going to produce value in the first few years for it to be viable. But you can have both. If you don't have profits today, if you don't have cash flow today, mm-hmm. you cannot you know, pay your shareholders because you've got to attract investors. Right. So that's the first and foremost that you've got to do. And then part of that is you need that free cash flow to invest in these new projects. So I think what people are doing is realizing now, as I mentioned before, that you've got to have both. You've got to have something that can produce cash in the medium term that right. can be doing sustainably if you can do it. Right. I much prefer that the big companies like ExxonMobil and BP and Shell and Exxon are the right. ones that we choose to close the gap uh, energy. Why? Because they're highly regulated, they're transparent, they've got shareholders. So rather that than a smaller operator that maybe doesn't have the same right. transparency and maybe is cost-driven or maybe other countries that don't have the environmental regulations that we have. So I like the fact that these big companies, Aramco is one of them, are the right. ones that we're looking at investing in for the short, medium, and long term to do both the energy for today, the security, and to fund the new technologies we're going to need for the energy transition. You know, we've kind of uh, talked, and I've always loved your stance on ESG and taking care of the environment. Do you think Oxy was one of the best players out there? Because they really went to the carbon capture environment and it was a Warren Buffett bought a bazillion shares. Uh, that's a technical term, you know, bazillion. So he, he bought all these shares. So do you think if you're an oil company like you just described and you're doing both, you know, uh, you're going to attract more investors? I'm, I'm just asking. Well, I think go back a step, Stu. I mean, obviously, the $10 billion that uh, Warren Buffett put in preferred stock was really to help fund the Anadarko. And one of the things that Vicky Hollop is doing now is obviously paying down that debt because why? Because they've been fiscally well managing their core business. I think that was a, a key a few years back that it was growth at any cost. So they, they lost the investors, the traditional investors. Obviously, they never had the green people on board because the fact that you know oil and gas is, is seen as a, a polluter. So the first thing they did was say, look, we can actually manage. And the returns that you actually get in the moment from oil and gas companies that are leading the market. Right. So first and foremost, what they've shown is they can live within their means. Last year, the spending was below the rate of inflation. So the returns are phenomenal. And what are they doing? They're paying down debt. So right. getting less leverage. They're doing share buybacks. Right. Now, the, the one thing with the share buybacks is, you know, in theory, they're supposed to be value neutral. Right. So are dividends. But it does signal to the market good things that you believe your stock's undervalued and you want to reward the investors. But the other thing it can suggest is that maybe we don't have enough positive NPV projects in-house. So there was right. a better use for that money in new projects. But uh-huh. I think to answer your question, that there is a market out there, and Exxon just formed a new low carbon division. And what they see is they see that this could be a $6 trillion business by 2050, taking their expertise and applying it to other industries. So the the carbon intensive industries, steel and cement. So they can get expertise in how to mitigate and reduce carbon, all funded by what they do now, then they get the technological developments and it can be a viable business. Not sure if you know this, Stu, but the lithium battery was actually invented by ExxonMobil. I did not know that. In fact, the one of the uh, 
joint winners of the Nobel Prize two years ago. I surely died at the age of 100 last June. Right. So, uh, so big technology, big companies, they've got the experts. They know how to run R&D projects. And certainly when it comes to things like carbon sequestration, they understand the geology. They know how to drill. Right. So it can't be just these companies. But what it can be is if you put the incentive out there, you can encourage people to develop the technologies. There's, there's one thing that fascinates me, Stu. I mean, I think you and I grew up in the same era. What was the big climate challenge in the late 80s and 90s? It was acid rain. Right. Oh, absolutely. So how do we solve that? We solved that basically by the 1990 Clean Air Act. Right. The government said you have to reduce your emissions of sulfur dioxide by right. 50%. So it was causing the acid rain, which was falling the snow, rain, devastating rainforest. Right. But what they did was they said to people, we're going to set a limit. And as long as you're under that limit, right. then you're not going to be fined. But it also incentivized people that if you actually accelerated how you captured the sulfur dioxide, in these big coal-fired plants of putting it out. If you accelerated that, you could actually sell the credits that you hadn't used or your allowances right. to somebody else. Well, it turns out that it was a quarter of the cost that they expected to it was going to be. A lot of people say this is going to be um, hampering industry with more cost. And it actually happened about four times quicker than people thought. You don't hear about acid rain today. No. So I'm not too much for government regulation, but it's, there's got to be some incentives there. Put a monetary incentive there and people develop the technology. Well, do you think the Clean Air Act, I, I think, was uh, astounding in many ways, but it also, I believe, set the standard or the ability for them to overreach because the uh, regulatory s- situation in oil and gas and renewables is so strong and stringent that we're not they're they're they say they're at war with the oil and gas companies they're at war with all energy because even the oh the uh wind and solar they can't get built either i mean even the you know the train in um uh, california they're, they're it's what a hundred billion dollars over whatever the number is oh it's 15 years and over budget and it was supposed to be all powered by solar you know the, it's all regulations that are stopping those kind of projects do you think that there's any way to rein those back in i don't well Stu, I, I would argue that like most problems especially this magnitude right we have to have a balanced view we have to have people that actually made aware of the facts as you say we've got probably two polar groups now uh, you know just stop oil some people who say that we should be unfettered. And there's always the argument or the solutions could be somewhere in between. Here's what I would say is certainly if people are educated that there is no magic button to flip over at the moment now to 100% renewables for every reason. It's right. not just the power aspect. Think of everything that we use today. Think of what's basically facilitating this call now. We need plastics. Yep. Not just the calorific value of oil. We need raw materials for fertilizers for plastics, for medicines. Right. So just stop oil. So we need to have a rational argument. And I think like most things, the pendulum swings from one right. point to the other. It will come back in the middle. But if we're going to leave it to private enterprise to come up with the solutions, my view is you have to incentivize them. There's a great, great That's technology great out there, which I think is, is, is a great example. So if you take, for example, some of the lowest hanging fruit out there, if you want right. to reduce emissions, as you know, one of the things out there is certified gas. In other words, you will pay a premium or companies will pay a premium 
for the gas producers who can show they have eliminated or minimized their gas emissions. So they've monetized that. Okay? The great thing is that then trickles down to the smaller companies. There's a good friend of mine, ex-VP of uh, BP, extremely smart guy called Bob Flint. He's now the CEO of a company in the UK called Mirico. And basically what they've got is they've got a laser dispersion technology that can measure leaks. Wow. So they develop that technology. They'll only develop that and deploy it if there is a pull from the end user. And to pull from the end user, in my mind, you have to incentivize them. Maybe not so much stick, but you've got to say, well, look, you can. There's a, there's a benefit if you stop those fugitive leaks from abandoned wells or emissions on your actual production site, right. you can get a premium for your gas. So that's, to me, how I think commerce has always worked. The greatest things is you incentivize them, maybe a little bit of stick with regulations, put the incentives there, show people that they solve a problem, right. tangibly what they can earn. I think that will develop it. But I think there's, there's a lot of steps. It's not all just carbon capture in no. the future, which is an embryonic technology. We need that. There's some technology, not just direct air capture and removing CO2, but there's things like a little bit like the sulfur dioxide analogy. Let's have technologies that can actually scrub out of the emitting blue stacks, et cetera. And yeah, the cost of that moment is less than $50 a ton for some of these technologies. So there's a lot of things we can do. Yep. We can do it today. Yep. Yep. Methane, which is fugitive gas, right. is 80 times uh, worse a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. The good thing about it is it doesn't persist in the atmosphere like CO2 does. But there's a lot of things that technologies like uh, Miracle are doing now that can help people find where they're actually emitting methane. That's the first step. If you don't know right. where it's coming from, you can't do anything you about find it. it. Yeah. And then you can solve it. So that's the lowest hanging fruit, I think, out there, emissions. And then probably down to carbon capture at source has been emitted. And then maybe a little bit long term, how you actually suck direct air capture and remove CO2 from that. You know, I know you have a very strong technical background and a financial background, and that is critical when we're sitting here trying to think of the technology like you just mentioned, BP created the lithium batteries. Uh, and he, uh, ExxonMobil. Uh, ExxonMobil, thank you. I got to fact check myself, John. You know, it's it's just one of those things. But when you sit back and take a look, financially to the consumers, the ability for companies to look at financial seeing the ESG aspect and then trying to see that it's being pulled because not everybody wants to pay a little bit more for energy. They may not be able to. How do you articulate that across the whole thing? Because education is you can't pay three times the amount of, of money for your, your energy, your oil or anything else. How do you balance finance versus technology? A great, it's a great, great question. I think there is already out there a technology or a fuel that will do both. It's basically gas. Yep. And rather than say, let's eliminate fossil fuels, let's have that progression. Everybody knows coal is, in terms of the emissions it gets, the smog that we used to get, that's probably the worst case. Then you go maybe to oil, but then you go all the way to gas, high calorific value, relatively clean burning. So the, I think the, the argument should be that's the first step. I know in Germany now, they're trying to get people to completely rip out and change 
how they heat their homes. And there's a big backlash. Mm-hmm. Uh, a country that was seen as extremely green, you're completely right. Uh, people want green, but not if it means that by being green, I can't feed my family. So okay. it, it is a balance, but the great thing is, is there's, there's solutions out there. Now, obviously, Germany was highly dependent on Russian gas. And right. what they've done to, to shop all that, well, you know, the Green Party made them close down the nuclear plants. So the only thing they could fall back on was coal. And so coal is a bigger part of the energy mix in Germany than ever thought it could be. So for sure, it's, it's balanced, but gas to me can give... Uh, both my, my family still lives back in the UK. Energy prices are through the roof there. Wow. It's the old, you know, turn the lights off when you come out of one room, you know, minimize the, my mother's 92, you know, minimize the, the heating. It It is a tremendous amount of what they pay. I don't think it needs to be that right. much because there are solutions out that I think can can do both. Why is the price so high in the UK? Is it because of their energy policies or what's going on with that? I think it's a, a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, for sure. And a lot of it now is not coming from Russia. It's having to be imported from Algeria and Norway, et cetera. Right. Of course, the US is trying to, but there's, there's a myriad of things there as well. Okay. Yeah, because if I remember right, um, they also import uh, out of the Norway's uh you know, area there. I think there's eight connections to Norway. And I think uh, the UK has two of those. I could be wrong, but. It- also Holland, the Kroningen gas fields, some of the biggest gas fields in Europe. And right. you know, they they were not run down, but they certainly weren't developed as much because everybody just switched across to Russian gas. Right. We've seen uh, in that uh, trilemma of security and affordability, that everybody went for affordability. Right was cheap, but obviously had security implications as well. You know, you and I are in such agreement. This is pretty cool on this. How do you, as an industry leader, you've got your technology background, you got your finance background. What do you see as the number one thing that we can do to help get to the next level? Is it education? Is it, what do we do? Well, I mentioned it. If we're going to solve energy climate change, and I think whichever Part of the spectrum that you stand on, people realize that we have to do something. All the oil companies, say the European and the American companies agree, it's just what strategy we're going to take. And it will be a mix. But as I mentioned before, I think there's some technology gaps there, which we've got to incentivize people to take. Now, what that means is in the in the interim, uh, we've got to step up with friendly countries and companies that we control to fill the gap. Right. I just been rereading the prize, Daniel Jurgen's book, and talking about how basically the states had its own Russia-Germany situation with the uh, with the Saudis back in the 70s. And the so we we've got a great gift here in the States, which is we've got shale production. We've got to use that, we've got to be as clean as we can, right. we've got to eliminate things like greenhouse gases by doing emissions, we've got to be the cleanest energy that we can here in the States. That's sort of step one. Right. We've got to incentivize people, in my mind, to develop new technologies, put a prize out there like that Clean Air Act, where people right. can actually monetize the improvements they make. And then people like ExxonMobil can sell the expertise they've learned to some of the bigger polluters like steel and cement. So it's it's going to be more incentive rather than just dogmatic uh, protests. At some point, we need to have a conversation that really does look at it as a balanced view. 
You know, uh, John, you are definitely uh, a, a fun kind of cat because having technology, as we had talked about, I believe it was Exxon that said they're going to like really increase their properties in the Permian. What kind of technology do you think they're going to be using? Because we're all sitting here kind of going, they're going to be increasing the Permian. Rig count is down. But what kind of new technologies do you see coming around the corner? Right. Well, they made a big announcement, the CEO, a few weeks back about what they're going to do. And the great thing is, you are rig counts are going down, but that's because we're doing more on each well. As I mentioned, we're only taking out at the moment about 10% of the original in place. Right. You know, people who may not be aware of it, shale is like slate. So you really got to smash it, crack it, or frack it, as they call it, to get those minute particles of oil and gas out. Right. And sometimes they're trapped in pores, which are so small, they're like the size of human DNA. So it's a, it's a complex job. So 90% of the moment of that oil and gas is left trapped. So what... Exxon are going to do, they want to do longer and longer laterals. So each well is actually retrieving oil from longer and longer sections. The other thing they want to do is they're actually going to try and keep the fracks that they make open longer. So we're actually transporting more oil and gas out of there. So it's really efficiency improvement. So when you drill a rig, that's the biggest capex, is, as you say, getting the rig there, all the people, right. the incremental cost to have a longer lateral and then to have a an effective frack, so that actual completion, the stages there, but those cracks don't close up when you remove the frack food and the pressure drops, how do you keep them open? And then I mentioned there's technologies out there like biosurfactants, like some of the nanoparticles out there that can do a third step, which is the oil is basically attached, as I mentioned, by capillary pressure to the rock phase. It doesn't want to move. So you need to almost change its wettability, change it from a film of oil to almost like a droplet of oil, and then it will mobilize. So there are things that you can do mechanically, as Darren Woods was talking about, and there's things you can do chemically. And again, Exxon want to double their production from the Permian. Right. And obviously, recovery rates is a massive part of that. They can go from 10 to 14% recovery. What does that mean? That means you don't have to drill as many wells. So straight away, your carbon footprint goes down because drilling a well is a massive carbon cost. And so again, the market is coming up now and incentivizing new technologies to come through. And this will have a trickle-down effect to all the suppliers who will then develop these technologies to help Exxon and other companies. You know, I'd, I'd love to do some research on some of this. And the reason I'm asking this is because you know, in the wind farms, we hear that they're going to be there for 20 and 30 years. Well, I, all the numbers I'm finding is they're less than eight years. And you're seeing them start to really fail uh, and have some problems. And I, nobody's talking about that. You know, the, the wind farm becomes no longer viable after eight to 10 years. Well, there's saying they're going to last 30. So as we move back over into the the area over here and say on the uh, finance part of this, as we take a look at the next, uh, how do I phrase this? There is uh, some things that we can do on the uh, length, because if you have the economies of scale of longer laterals, and you have the the cost for drilling a well, you know, has gone up dramatically because of the cost of steel, because of the cost, you know, $15 million is nothing to spend on a well. 
but if that well that you're going to spend uh 15 million on and then you get an extra i don't know 2000 feet or whatever the number the little lateral is or whatever it is but you only spend another 2 million and then you get x number of dollars out that balance between dollars spent on a more effective rig with lower ESG is more expensive but is it a bigger crapshoot, if you would, because you don't know those longer laterals are going to pull back more oil and gas? I don't know. That's a tough question for me. I think they do, Stu. I think they know now that if they can effectively extend the lateral, you will get more oil. I think it's a that's sort of proven now. But the great thing about shale is, unlike some of the other projects that people are looking for, especially you go to deep water or you go to, say, a project in Africa, Shale produces back, is breaking even in one to two years on these projects because the flow of oil comes back at its peak. And shale is a, is a, especially when interest rates are high, it's a great investment as opposed to something that's got, you know, I, I, I'll give you an example, an, an offshore well, right? as opposed to shale well. Offshore well could be in excess of $200 million just to drill it out. Once you pay for that, it, it's a, it's a, it's a great, Capital comeback, you know, they'll last for typically for multi, multi years, whereas shale is basically very high production, which then tapers off. As I mentioned, there's technologies that can boost that. But that's right. the great thing about shale and why shale, especially at high interest rates, will, will generally be favored because the payback is so quick. You can actually recover right. your costs, get to break even. And then these things that they're doing to actually increase that, what it generally means is you'll get more back in that first two years. Right. Uh, I think personally, what we should also be doing is how do you extend the life of those wells? Right. It'd be more effective refracts. It could be technologies that you can apply, which again, are getting more of that 90% of the oil right. out. Not just getting a bigger peak oil and then uh, the same decline curve that we get. Is a, there's a great, great incentive out there to do it. Yeah. Um, longer, longer laterals and you get a, a different decline curve. We need several trillion dollars to invest just to keep our decline curve at current level of demand. So at, well, at, they, do, they do that. And again, I don't think that the, the maintaining the production rate, at, you know, 12 million in the U.S. at the moment, maintaining that production rate at the moment generally means that you have to do more and more fracking. Right. Now, obviously, there's environmental cost of doing that. I mentioned the CO2 footprint of a new well. But again, if we can get more of our existing well stocks, if you can actually say that I produce from this field, whatever right. that field is, X number of million barrels over five years, right. but I did it with this carbon footprint. I only actually needed to do 60% of the fracks that a normal operation would do. My right. overall carbon footprint or my carbon intensity of my crude has come down. So there's a, there's a lot of incentives. That and I also think, Stu, in the same way that we've done certified gas, if we can reward people for lower carbon oil and say, actually, this has got a lower carbon intensity, the oil produced in this field, and that operator can get a premium for that, that again will pull through and I think do both. That's a great suggestion, can. John. That's really good. A, a lower carbon oil and reward for that. Well, again, the market's got to. So, you know, if you extrapolate this all the way, and this is something that locusts are doing now, you can extrapolate all the way to. If you could show you got a lower carbon feedstock going into refinery, now that's easy to say and tough to do, then you could argue that 
all the way through to the products that they produce will be low carbon intensity. Everything from right. aviation fuel to the naphthas to ethylene oxide, whatever it is. But again, somebody's got to create that market because if you don't get, if all you get rewarded for is improved efficiency, producing more oil the same way, right. that's a benefit. But if you can also say that carbon footprint's important or carbon intensity is important, and then pull that through and get a premium for your product, again, like the certified gas, you'll create a market. Right. That's kind of cool. You know, uh, John, I think we've got more than enough to talk about in about 16 different more episodes. Um, but I'll tell you what, what's coming around the corner that you see in the industry for OPEC? Do you see that as they're coming around, uh, are they going to hold their production levels or continue to drop? Because they're kind of seeing that they want the higher prices. What are you, what's your crystal ball saying there? From what I read, Stu, uh, for sure, it's in everybody's interest. OPEC uh, and OPEC Plus now, including Russia, has right. got to tread that fine line. I mean, it looks as if they don't want an economic collapse again by by putting the prices up too high. Right. I think they're starting to accept now, this is purely my opinion, you know, a few years ago, they tried to maybe kill the U.S. shale industry. Well, that's, <laughs> that genie's out of the bottle. So I think now they're accepting the U.S. as a part of the mix. And then they're trying to adjust their output to keep the overall price up, realizing that, it's a fine line. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, in theory, they could get $100 a barrel, but it would destroy the demand for their product. So I think they will continue to do that. I think okay. it's, a, it's a fine political line. What it does go to show, in my mind, is we have to have a robust domestic industry. Right. We cannot be – Germany have found this out, and so has Europe. We found it out in the 70s. We need to have a robust hydrocarbon industry here, but use American technology innovation to make it the cleanest barrels of oil and million standard cubic feet of gas that we can. And we can do that. And it needs, I think it needs people to have a narrative. It needs people not to be polarized on the arguments, realize it's a mix and put all these factors together and come up with a, you know, it's almost like saying a joint plan for world peace. But I think we can do this. It's going to be government intervention, it's going to be financial incentives, but we certainly got the brain power and the history here in the States to solve these problems. I like the way you articulated that, John. How do people reach out to you? Through you, hopefully, Stu. Um, I hope we're going to publish this on LinkedIn, and I'd ask people to to reach out when we do that. Okay. Um, Sounds great. Uh, so well, just contact you on LinkedIn and you're off and running. So I think that you're a valuable uh, asset to the entire in- industry. And John, thank you for uh, being able to uh, visit with you again. And uh, I've always enjoyed our uh, conversation. So thank you for stopping by the podcast, John. Thank you, Stuart.